Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hello and welcome back to Practical Stoicism. I'm your host, Tanner Campbell, and today I'm going to be having a discussion with Sharon LaBelle. Sharon LaBelle wrote a book some years ago called The Art of Living, and that book is probably single-handedly responsible for me being here today. And I might mean that in multiple ways. I at least mean that in I wouldn't be podcasting about stoicism if it wasn't for Sharon. So to have her on the show, knowing that she does not give many interviews and knowing that she had such a big impact on me was kind of a celebrity freakout moment for me a little bit. The Discourses from Epictetus and the Enchiridion by Epictetus and the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and Letters to a Stoic or Letters from a Stoic, Seneca's Letters, those books were very difficult for me when I was younger, let's say 2014, 2015, which is really when I started to have my interest in Stoicism because I saw it as being so practical. Those books that I just mentioned were harder for me to get into because I was an atheist at the time. I'm still an atheist, but I was part of the atheist activism community at the time. And so I had a very acerbic relationship with anything that talked about God because I viewed religion, and in particular, though I wouldn't have made the distinction at the time, modern religion, I had such a bad view of it. And I allowed that view to get in the way of me being able to really appreciate some Stoic texts because, again, it was just very acerbic. When I saw Sharon's book, The Art of Living, there was something very different about it. Number one, it was short. It was probably only 120 pages. And number two, the cover of it didn't look like every other cover of every other Stoic book I had seen on the shelf at that time. It was a marble statue of a woman. Now, a marble statue or bust is very common among Stoic books, right? It seems to adorn the cover of every Stoic book I see in the library or in the bookstore or on Amazon. And I'm going to try to not fall into that trope myself for my book, but I may end up doing just that. 
And while Sharon's did have a marble statue on it, the woman was a woman and facing away, and the font on the cover was more flowing, and it wasn't as academic a looking piece of work as what I had come to be kind of expecting whenever I saw something about Stoicism. And those factors combined to make me think, maybe I'll give this one a read. It looks a little more modern. Obviously, it's different or it wouldn't look the way it looks. And perhaps it'll be good for me to read this. Maybe this will be a way I can push through and get enough of an appreciation for Stoicism that I can go on and read those other books. And that is exactly what happened. I think within just a few pages, maybe fewer than a few, maybe just one page, I realized that I was looking at a representation of things I had tried to read that was going to enable me to put aside that acerbic relationship I had with modern religion and realize of it, of that acerbic relationship, I mean, that it was going to get in my way of something more important than me having qualms with modern religion. And by the time I finished that book, which I don't even think took me a day because it was so short, I realized that Stoicism was the exact philosophy, maybe the only philosophy that I wanted to learn more about. And if Sharon hadn't written that book, and if I hadn't picked it up, I wouldn't be here today. And I might mean that in more than one way. I don't know what my life would have been like if I hadn't found Stoicism. I was depressed at that stage in my life for a number of reasons. Now, I wasn't morbidly or clinically depressed, but I was a pretty sad person. And I didn't know where my life was going, and I didn't feel great. And who knows what that might have spun out of control into. But Sharon's book helped me put away my big qualms with modern religion enough to fully read the meditations, to fully read Seneca's letters, or a pretty significant selection of them, to read the discourses, and to read the Enchiridion. And those books, in turn, in their own way, changed my life. So Sharon LaBelle had an immense impact on my relationship with Stoicism, and to interview her, rather to have a discussion with her, I should say more properly, was was like, I don't know, a child meeting Mickey Mouse in some ways. It was really exciting that she said yes. She doesn't give many interviews. And here she was willing to give an interview to me. Again, I should be saying conversation. This was not an interview. And rather than continue to ramble on about how great I think Sharon is and what a great impact she has had on my life, I will instead jump right into this conversation and say, I hope you enjoy it. So here it is, my conversation with Sharon LaBelle. Sharon LaBelle, I really appreciate you being here. You are, and I'm sure I'll, I'll just gush over this more than once, you are probably single-handedly responsible for getting me really seriously interested in Stoicism because of your book, The Art of Living, which was a modern interpretation of Epictetus's work. And I just, it's very cool that you're on this show talking to me. I would have never thought I would get the chance. So thank you for being here. Thank you for making me so welcome. It's a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here. Let's start with who you are, where you're from, where you were born. You know, what what was little baby Sharon like? Where'd you come from? (laughs) Well, uh, I originally hail from Los Angeles, from the suburbs, actually, but from an interesting slice of the suburbs. I don't know if you or your listeners have heard of Eichler Homes, but They are mid-century modern style homes that were built in the late 1950s and the early 1960s by a developer named Joseph Eichler. What's important about the homes he built 
is that he wanted his developments to be racially and uh, religiously integrated at a time when redlining was still practiced. And so although I grew up surrounded by a lot of white middle-class people in the periphery of my experience. My neighborhood was, I, I was the only white person and everyone was from everywhere. Across the street was a family from India. There were many, many uh, Japanese families. So all to say from, from the start, I feel very lucky to have experienced being with a lot of different kinds of people as being normative. So that, that made a big impact, I think. Did that, I am, well, I imagine it would make you a very unique child in exposure to different, we're a philosophy show, so certainly would have exposed you to very different religions and thereby different philosophies as well, yes? Yes. Uh, our, our neighbor across the street, a man named Narayan Champawat, who ended up being a lifelong friend and sadly passed away recently, he was from India, and he introduced me. He was a philosophy professor, actually, at the local college, and he introduced me to philosophy really quite by accident. I was just playing with his kids, and I happened to wander into his library, which was their house had basically books were the furniture in this house. And I, I was dumbstruck. And I said, Mr. Champawat, what do you do for a living? And he says, I teach philosophy. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, I, you know, I'm, of course, paraphrasing. <laughs> You're backfilling some of the memory. Sure, sure. Yes, that's right. But basically, he said, oh, I remember he used the word wonder. And even though in my little grade six or grade seven head, I didn't really know what that meant. I put a bookmark there and I thought, wonder, wonder, hmm. And I really think that that moment, that incidental meeting was the beginning of what became in my teen years and my 20s. Uh, I think it's fair to call it an obsession with with uh, philosophy, with with reading, reading philosophy, with I, I love that it it was a discipline focused on questions instead of telling people what to do, asking questions and trying to figure it out. Yes, yes. I have a similar experience, although it was with my grandfather. He was a judge, a district court judge in Connecticut, and he had you know one room in his house was all his legal books and his big mahogany desk. And it was like a very official, grown-up feeling room. And I remember that that room in the den adjacent to it was just shelves and shelves of books. And there's something, I don't know if all my listeners will identify with this. I imagine many of them will have a similar experience. The first time you walk into a place that's filled with books, there's this, there's a smell, there's a feeling. There's like, oh, I'm somewhere different. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I imagine that's something like what you felt. Oh, I mean, I can't say it better than you. There's something about a room full of books that tacitly says through our senses, life has gravity, life matters. We're not just goofing around here. 
that that's what I take away. <laughs> I think yeah, and I take I think I take that away as well. I remember watching you, or at the time, I guess listening to you after the fact. Maybe it was a YouTube or a podcast. I can't remember, but you gave a talk at one of the Stoicons. I want to say it was 2017. It was the first time I had heard you, and I can't remember if I was drawn to Stoicon because of your book or that Stoicon put me on to you, and I read it, saw the Stoicon first, and then read the book, or if it was vice versa. But I remember you remarking that at the outset of your life, you were interested mostly in Eastern philosophy and that that changed at some point and you were drawn to Western philosophy and especially to Epictetus, which is, of course, what your the book that I love so much is focused on. Can you talk a little bit about that switch, how you got to Eastern philosophy and what maybe pulled you more West? Well, the fact that I was interested in Eastern philosophy, I think, it just came from osmosis in a way that in the early 80s, late 70s and early 80s, when I was coming of age, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy were enjoying their moment. They were the it thing. And in fact, I, I remember when I was 18 years old, I was living in Santa Cruz, California, and I saw some notice on a bulletin board in a health food store that there was going to be uh, a Buddhist university starting in Boulder, Colorado. And so I just got on a bus and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, where this rather well-known place, uh, the Naropa Institute, continues to flourish. And Anyway, I was very, indeed, I was interested in meditation. I was drawn to Eastern philosophy because I guess like a lot of people, I was sort of disaffected by the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots of mainstream Judeo-Christian religion. I, I wasn't altogether alienated from religion, from organized religion, but I liked the idea of having a direct experience through then uh, meditation. It's hard to put into words, but a, a kind of clear-sightedness, a kind of reprieve from seeing the world through my very limited judgmental mind. Uh, just having a, just a sense of ease knowing that the world is so much bigger than my puny peanut head. <laughs> and I found that very liberating. And yet, I also, although I couldn't have ever put it into words then, and I'm not sure how facile I am doing it now, but I have always viewed life through a moral lens, primarily. Not a moralistic lens, but I believe in, you know, you'll hear, hear people say, stop being so judgmental all the time. But I think it, if we abdicate judgment, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's like three sheets to the wind, you know, I mean, it's, we, I believe that we encounter experience in terms of value gradients, you know, good, better, best, bad, worse, worst. And that we need to make those distinctions in order to incline our thoughts and our words and our deeds in the direction of good, better, best versus bad, worse, worst. And so I think 
we're constantly making moral judgments along that gradient, and we're making aesthetic judgments, and we're making practical judgments, you know, which which is a better tool to use to, you know, fix your um, garbage disposal, there are better tools. So we have, we need to embrace that. And I, I found that the themes of value and being aware of what is value and valuable and what isn't much more salient in Western philosophy. And so I I happened on reading Epictetus. You know, I can't even honestly say how or even when I first read his um, discourses. But I remember thinking, this this is good. This philosopher is not telling me so much what to believe, but to use my to use my head, to use my power of disc- powers of discrimination in order to know what my moral, aesthetic, practical, and dare I say spiritual values, what they are. Were you attracted to, because I make this comparison sometimes, and I hope I'm not wrong in doing it, but I say that Stoicism and Eastern religions, Buddhism in particular, maybe Zen Buddhism most in particular, they're very similar in a lot of regards. But the biggest regard in which they are not similar is that Buddhism is very, I don't find it to be full of very plain language. It's very metaphoric. It's very poetic. Whereas I see Stoic literature, and Epictetus especially, to be very plain language. Were you attracted to the plain language of it all at all? Tanner, I have honestly never thought of that until this moment. You're bringing it up. But I can say unreservedly, yes, yes. And maybe that even comes, I'm, I'm just ripping now, but I wonder if that comes from being a North American, you know, just <laughs> tell me what you're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe even a little New England Protestant, which I can definitely identify yes. with. Right. Get right. to the point, would you? Right, right. All this, you know, the birds and how the sunset <laughs> looks, you know, that's all pretty. But And your point is? <laughs> <laughs> well, so 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 you get drawn back to, or, or rather to, Western philosophy, and then you wind up in, uh, if memory is serving, 2010, 2011, deciding that you are, and I, I feel like the research that I did to prepare for this interview suggested that you actually wrote this book before you wrote the book I'm thinking of. So you did an interpretation of the art of living, but I think you did one just before that that didn't really hit, and then this one did. Is that right? Yes, it it's true and they were very much related i i started out and i really did it for myself first uh doing an interpretation of epictetus's his enchiridion just his manual so it was a very small book and in, actually in the publishing trade <laughs> back in the day they used to have this format that they called little treasures Oh, I remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, so I wrote this book uh, as part of a line of little treasures. And it did okay, but then I thought so much is left out here because Epictetus's broader extant work that the discourses or at least the discourses that remain for us because apparently many of them were lost back in ancient times. Uh, there was so much richness in or, or just so much practical wisdom 
that you could apply in your everyday life. And so I, I went back to the publisher and I said, you know, I, I think we need a broader treatment here. And fortunately, they gave me the go ahead. And how did you approach writing that? I, I always wonder, as some, I mean, I write about 14,000 words a week for this daily podcast that I do. And I still think writing a book, even though I'm in the middle of doing so, is such an overwhelming task, especially when it changes from being for you, as you said, the first book was mostly for you, to being for the masses, so to speak. What was that like? That had to be kind of a, it's got to be a big mind shift, right? It certainly was. And I wish I could say it was some orderly or even pleasant process, but I would be lying if I said that. We can't do that. That wouldn't be very stoic of us. That wouldn't be very <laughs> stoic. So I'll just say straight out how it all went. Actually, in this very room I'm sitting in, it's kind of a just a very big room with very tall ceilings, which helped me think. I had the whole floor strewn with translations, English translations of Epictetus and also Marcus Aurelius's meditations, just as a supplement to just broaden my sense of the spirit of Stoicism, because I did set myself the task of delivering the spirit of Stoicism not over and against the letter of Stoicism, but my byword was accessibility. So I was just surrounded by these uh, translations, and I would pick one up and then uh, and and read a section, and then read the corresponding section in you know an altogether different uh, translation, and then I would make notes and. Then I would return to the notes, and there was no rhyme or reason to it. There just was no and it was I was very fretful actually during the process because I did not want to possibly misrepresent the intentions of Epictetus. I mean, not not that I could ever know what was literally in his head, but at the same time, I just felt it was so important to do a popular rendition. And, you know, and of course, for academics, popularizers are the people they love to hate, right? <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> because we're seen as as kind of dumbing stuff down or... Well, it's, it's harder, isn't it? Because it is in some ways extremely didactic and simple to do a word-for-word -word translation. But it has got to be truly terrifying to do an interpretation because it's easier to get a translation right in a lot of ways. It is far harder, I think, to get an interpretation right because it's an interpretation. So it's almost like no way to do it right. So I imagine this must have been very stressful. That it was. And finally, I, I just had to decide it was done and, you know, kind of stepped out in faith and handed in the manuscript and, and crossed my fingers. And I just kept telling myself, the important thing is not to try to present myself as any kind of spokesperson for Epictetus or even Stoicism more generally. But I, I wanted the reader of this book to come away with a sense of the urgency and the preciousness of the life we've been given. And if the book somehow helps the reader 
to take their life seriously, not in a grim way. I mean, I love humor. And I think, I mean, humor is my vitamin H. I have to have it every day. But if the book could somehow inspire a person to want to, um, I don't know, kind of disinter that inner sense, I like to think we all have of a sense of destiny or the better part of our nature that we want to amplify. You know, because so many of us go through life, I, I think we live two simultaneous lives. There's our outward presentational self, which we have to labor to be intelligible to other people. We have to kind of uh, modulate our communication, our body language, because what we're trying to do in any encounter with another person is to find common ground, you know, either just to execute some kind of a commercial transaction or to fall in love or a parent child whatever it is but because that outward self has to be so kind of vigilantly curated <laughs> all the time for public consumption what can get pushed away or pushed down is that i don't know how to say it tanner just that well, it doesn't sound grand, but just that sense of inner wisdom that does abide, that if we avail ourselves, if we can, of some stillness to hear it, to gain access, um, it kind of changes everything. Anyway, I, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound overly grandiose, but I was hoping that by writing what would seem on the surface to be a very simple, accessible book, that it would invite people to go deeper in themselves and to also go deeper in their reading of original philosophical texts. Well, now I know why you were so happy to hear that that is exactly what it did for me, and I'm sure it has done that for countless other people. I recommend this book very regularly as an specifically for that purpose, as an introduction to the concepts of Stoicism. I will recommend it before I even recommend Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and everybody knows he's the poster boy of Stoicism, or, or so you would think. <laughs> I always recommend Sharon LaBelle and The Art of Living first. So, I am glad that I get to say that to you because it was so informative for me. But how have others found it? Are you happy with the success of that book? I mean, it still ranks pretty high on Amazon. I mean, like it's it's selling pretty regularly, coming off the shelves every day. That's pretty cool. It, it's very gratifying that it's done well um, for a lot of reasons. One is that it's only sold by word of mouth. The publisher never, I, I don't, mean to sound ungrateful or cranky about it, but um, just as a fact, the, the publisher never did much to publicize it. I never went on a speaking tour or anything like that. And frankly, I'm perfectly happy about that because I like to be by myself. But what does please me about it is from time to time, I've heard kind of dramatic stories like um, I've gotten mail from a, a number of veterans who had been in Afghanistan, Iraq, for whom the book helped them, they felt, stay alive in themselves while they were witnessing unspeakable events that could have otherwise broken them. And, and to somehow feel, I mean, I don't feel like I did that because I think you know as someone who writes in a lot of ways, and I 
hope I don't sound like, you know, some kind of Northern California nutcase. <laughs> but when you write something, it kind of writes you, you know, it kind of comes through you, you feel like, a, or at least speaking for myself, I feel more like a conduit or a vessel. And so I do take great satisfaction knowing that this book, but even a book can be a major pivotal factor in someone's life and in augmenting or even saving their well-being. Mm. I can see how, and I still, by the way, I just purchased another copy of this book not a month ago for my girlfriend who is struggling with generalized anxiety and she does therapy and stuff like that for it. But she came away from your book feeling, she said this book, and I don't want to make you cry. <laughs> I don't know if you're prone to that, but she came away from this book saying, I think that this book has done more for me than the therapy I've been in for the last six months. And so I think that exactly what you aim to do with this book, although I don't expect my significant other, Brittany, will go on to read more about stoicism in particular. I think that even for people whom it does not do that. It does something pretty meaningful, like the example that you gave with soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's just beautiful. I please give my best to Brittany. That's just a wonderful thing. And I know in her own life, by what she does and who she does and, and how she does herself, for lack of a better way to say it, um, other people will be thereby changed. I'm not saying because of my book, but because we give what we have, right? We just, we do the best we can. And we are, are perfectly imperfect selves. We, we offer what we have. And, and sometimes, most of the time, we don't even see how our own deeds or words radiate out into the future and can make a big difference. I agree. Sharon, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Stoicism and about Epictetus, and those of you listening, stick with us for that. This episode is brought to you in part by Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with over 3 million members. They are, without a doubt, the easiest way to play DFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, Prize Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder Prize Picks is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use Prize Picks, and they absolutely swear by it. So if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give Prize Picks a try. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash practical and use the code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com forward slash practical with code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. 
you may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We're back with Sharon LaBelle, author of The Art of Living the latest interpretation, the one I love the most. In 2021, Sharon, you gave a talk at Stoicon and you mentioned your love of the four cardinal virtues, but you referred to them as, and not in a pejorative way, but you said they were me virtues. They were virtues about me. And you thought that it would be helpful in Stoicism to come up with things that were technically encompassed by me virtues, but you called them we virtues. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of me versus we in Stoicism? The four cardinal virtues of Stoicism are wonderful. They're good, simple pillars around which to organize one's aspirations for oneself. However, uh, as you mentioned, Tanner, I call them I virtues because I think of them as being ultimately self-referential. Courage, temperance, justice, wisdom, very important to magnify these, I like to think of them as natural endowments, but they have to be trained. They have to be governed. But in order, I guess what I think of, uh, the reason why I think they're great but not sufficient is that you could imagine someone living an isolated life, you know, some, you know, putative spiritual master living in a cave who's courageous and temperate and approaches the world with a sense of balance and clarity and justice and is oh so wise. But then what of it? Because to me, the locus of life where we actually live is in relationship. We live in relationship to others. And so I believe we need to and, and this will ruffle some feathers because I'm a <laughs> playing kind of fast and loose with some very revered old wisdom. But just because something's old doesn't mean it's complete. It, it can be heuristic. It can point to something wider. And I think we need to start thinking about how we express human goodness in relation to other people, namely compassion, altruism, social justice, being aware 
of the effects of our thoughts and our words and deeds on other people, both the people whom we immediately encounter in our lives, and just making reference to what we said a little bit earlier in the conversation, people very distant from us uh, geographically uh, or even in time, where our actions, the choices we make, really do reverberate out to others. We can never know how much our decisions about how we not just live our lives, but how we meet this very moment, how that can end up mattering in a really, really, really big, uncalculated and unforeseen way in the fullness of time. And for that reason, I always like to put a big emphasis on the importance of this very moment, because I think all of us, and especially in this jacked up world we're living in now with our, you know, with our phones and beep beep, and we're always kind of being conditioned to react to something or to respond to something external to ourselves. Oh, that's just my brother. He just needs to know what time I'll be arriving. And then you text back. Well, that takes us out of the moment. But the moment really is where, I don't know, I was going to say the word our power lies, but that sounds too... Um, well, it's where our ability to do anything lies. It's where our, our only influence is in the, in the, this, and now it's gone, and here comes another one, and that's gone now. Right. Yeah. But this is where it matters. This is where it matters, because we all know that if we look back at anything important that ever happened just in our own lives, it all shifted in a moment, you know, from just accidentally meeting that person or hearing that word or whatever it happened to be, the, the uh, kind of precipitating instant that made us shift one iota of a degree, and then everything was different. So I urge people to not to get uptight, you know, oh, no, I didn't do something important in this moment. Oh, my God, I'm wasting my life. Not like that. But to realize that when that it's really easy to waste your life by ignoring the opportunity that any given moment affords you. Especially when the case is that you have no idea. A lot of us will assume we're going to live to be 90. I mean, modern medicine's so good, and we could get hit by a bus tomorrow. We could, you know, suffer any number of maladies and suddenly be gone. So it's not as though we have all the time in the world to be in the present moment. We're running out of present moments faster than we're gaining them, which is we don't gain them at all. We just get the number that we're fated for, I suppose. It's it's a limited natural resource. Yeah. You mentioned social justice, and I know that the term social justice, mostly because we have companies that it seems like part of their marketing is to care, and that's kind of suspicious to all of us with any sense, right? We're like, oh, yeah, how much do you really care? <laughs> Yeah. And then we have people who do a lot of virtue signaling around the idea of social justice. It's more about an image that people seem to be maintaining than a genuine thing that people care about. But when we talk about social justice, we just mean, as the Stoics would have meant, wanting to stand up and do something about the dispreferred indifference in the world, to change the way the world is. And 
I have talked about on the show before how Stoicism, very unfortunately, can sometimes be mixed up with nihilism as if it's, you know, everything's faded, we're determinists, and so there's nothing that we can necessarily do, so why do anything? Let's just focus on ourselves. Like what you said about going and becoming a hermit uh, and living that reclusive lifestyle. What are, in your eyes, some of the most important issues of justice in the modern day that you think any Stoic should, or rather can, have a serious impact on? My first reflexive thought is feeding people, making sure people not only have enough to eat, but not have to worry about where their next meal or the next meal for their child is going to be. And I I mean, there's so many other very, very important topics of concern But that is a good entry point, right? Because that is something that, I mean, you could have very easily come back with something like, well, racism is a problem or sexism is a problem. These are very large, seemingly we can't do anything to really solve these problems. It can feel that way because they're such overwhelming large problems. But you say feeding people. Well, for goodness sake, everybody could do something small to make a difference there. Plenty of charities try to feed people in this country and other countries. There's a way to get involved in that. So I think that's that's actually a super answer because anyone can do exactly that. It's You know what, to me, what's important about what you just said, Tanner, is, and again, it it kind of revives this idea of the importance of moments. You know, the concept of social justice in and of itself, it can seem quite abstract. And our efforts to remedy certain injustices, they too can sound abstract. But Where we can practice social justice is in the place and in the moment we actually find ourselves in the world. I return over and over again to that idea of just what can we concretely do right now? You know, so so often, for example, we'll think about, oh, I'm going to run home and write a check to uh, do something about climate change or something, which is very, very important. But then we'll pass, you know, a man on the street who who woke up under a bridge, and maybe he's talking to, you know, his invisible friend or enemy, and we get a little scared about that, and we don't engage. But there's an opportunity that we could take to, to do some good you know, to be curious, to find out how we can be of use. Well, that's a central tenet of Stoicism, right, is to be of use. We're meant to work together like the hands and feet and the eyelids and all that. It's one of my favorite meditations from Marcus. I cite it all the time. And I think it's unfortunate that so many, I I won't say modern Stoics because between you and I, when we say modern Stoics, we're talking about a certain camp of people. Uh, But what I just mean is like people today who think they're being Stoic because they're not caring about something or they're repressing emotion. It's unfortunate that the more broader understanding of Stoicism, which is, I think, very largely, at least equally based in community service. I almost think that one of the pillars of Stoicism, I talk about the value pavilion and the roof is virtue and the pavilion and the columns are the virtues, but I always think there should be a fifth column and that fifth column is an outright mention of community service, service to people. And I guess that is technically included in justice and bravery. And because for what other reason are you doing those things? You know, that's that's part of the whole game, but it's not. And I don't think we talk enough about it. I like your fifth pillar. I think it's important. I think it's really important. I wonder if it sometimes might be skipped over because it sounds 
a little bit prosaic. Yeah. Hokey. Or, yeah, you know, rather than grand, you know. I, I mean, a lot of times I think people who seek to put philosophy into practice, um, there can be some grandiosity in that in that impulse. Right, like the only way to do something right is to do something big instead of doing something small, like the homeless person outside this coffee shop might ask you for money, and maybe you're uncomfortable doing that, but you could buy them a coffee, or you could stop by the next day with a beanie or something to keep them warm in the colder months. Right. Not sexy, but actually, in its own way, elevates the whole universe, I like to think. Absolutely. Sharon, we're going to take one more break. I know you've got to get out of here. So we're going to take one short break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about the walled garden and some of the things that are offered through that. Stay with us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. We're back with Sharon LaBelle, author of The Art of Living. And Sharon, before I let you go, because I know you've got a hard stop, I want to talk about the walled garden, what it is, where people can find it, and what you're doing over there. Sure. The walled garden is an experiment, a venture that I've started with two colleagues, Simon Drew and Kai Whiting. And what we're doing is creating an online community of philosophical, I I don't like the word seekers, but people who are seriously engaging in philosophy, with philosophy, and looking for ways to connect it to everyday life. We have members from all over the world. We're still getting our sea legs, but we're doing philosophical mentoring. We do meetups where we talk about a particular philosopher or a particular philosophical question. And the beauty of it, I think, is that we've created a culture where I think participants feel 
safe to come as they are and to say what they really think or to ask so-called dumb questions. It's very welcoming. And I should say that I, I'm a big, big advocate of non-digital culture. I, I believe in get out there and walk in the trees and read real books and so on. But I do think that the walled garden is a way that people who live in lots of different places can talk to one another and enrich each other's lives. So we're giving it a go. Well, how, so how can someone, this is a membership, a recurring monthly kind of thing. How does someone find out more about this? Just come to the walled garden.com. And so many of our events are free and people can just see if we're speaking their language. And then there's more, a more formal membership, I, I would suppose, if you wanted to. Yes, uh, there's Patreon. Does Does one need to become a member in order to partake in mentorship? Because you mentioned mentorship programs. Right. You don't necessarily have to become a member. Oh, that's great. Okay, so we'll send people there, the walled garden. Sharon, this has been a joy. Before I let you go, is there anything you want people to know about? Any projects you're particularly passionate about? Anything you want to just put out there? At the risk of repeating myself, I'm just going to say, I can't stress this enough. The fundamental question I think life continuously puts to us is, what can I do with this moment? With this moment, you can shoot a gun or you can draw someone into an embrace. You can build and maintain or you can destroy. It's all on us. I just urge us all to to dare to care about our own lives and about other people and to fully engage, however clumsily, with everything that comes our way. Because this isn't a dress rehearsal. This is our lives. This counts. And our lives mean something. I think that is the perfect way to wrap up this episode, which I will absolutely be titling Dare to Care. <laughs> Sharon, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show at some point. It's been a, it's been a great time. I'd love that, Tanner. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practical Stoicism. I appreciate you being here. If you haven't yet subscribed to this show, hit subscribe or follow or whatever the button says in the app you're listening so that you get new episodes the minute they come out. Also, if you've not reviewed the show, I would appreciate you doing so. You can review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or at podchaser.com. Thank you again for listening today, and until next time, take care. Take care.